This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit crestviewhutch.org. I always feel so small when I come into this pulpit. It's fantastic. And that is uh, the attitude you should come uh, to the Word of God uh, with, that I am small. And so would you open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 131 today, and let's be small before the Lord. Father, I pray that as we open your word today that you would show yourself to be great and mighty and yet not distant from us that you would draw near, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts, that we would, that we would love you more and illuminate our minds, that we would know you more and Lord, then transform our, our lives, that we would rest in you more. Lord, so many come into this room today and are watching online and the anxieties of this life, the, the realities and the, the fact that we don't know what reality is anymore in our world, uh, they weigh on our hearts and our minds, and we need to rest in you today. So we pray that today as we celebrate Phil, we would celebrate Jesus. As we celebrate a man who has placed his trust and faith for himself, his family, and for your people here at Crestview in your hands and in a hope that rests only in Christ, Lord, I pray that now we would find that same rest. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. It is an honor to be here at Crestview. It's an honor to be able to celebrate my friend. Um, One of the things that happens when you're a pastor for a long time is you realize who your real friends are and who really aren't friends. You go through pastoring, and it's an interesting thing as people come and go. My dad, who was in ministry for a really long time, told me uh, church ministry is more like a parade than anything else. People come, they're in your view for a short period of time, and they move on. It's your job to deal with them while they're in your view. And I know that there are many here who the Lord has taken to different places, and you're here today to celebrate with Phil and to celebrate Christ today. And so I'm glad you're here as well. But for me, it's just fun to be able to hop on a plane again. One of the things I do, uh, I pastor a local church called Old Powhatan Baptist Church. It is in Powhatan, Virginia, and it is old. So it is accurately named. Um, 1771, the church was founded and uh, have an opportunity to to serve a great group of people there that the Lord has brought to us. But we're in the middle of nowhere. We're a mile and a half off of any major road. Um, And the Lord has taken us to the nations to be able to share his glory, to proclaim his excellencies to the ends of the earth. And so one of the things I do also is I work with churches all over the state of Virginia to to take them to the ends of the earth, to make sure that God's uh, name is known among people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. And so um, Phil and I get to talk about that a lot. He, he's one of the first phone calls I usually make when I land back in the States and get to tell him about things that are going on and have an opportunity to, to hear about what Crestview is doing and how you're supporting the work of the gospel around the, the globe as well. So it, it's just an honor to be among you, an honor to be here with Phil. I am so thankful for Phil and his ministry in my life, the encouragement that he is, the, the way he prays for me, and I know that. It is a rare thing to know that someone is praying for you regularly. Um, But I'm really thankful for Meg. And the reason I'm really thankful for Megan is he finally stopped doubting himself when he found her. Um, When Phil was younger, he was always like, should I, should I, should I? 
And then he met the woman that was going to help him understand who he really is. And I praise the Lord for her and how you're an anchor in his life and God's great grace to him. So it is appropriate today for us to honor Phil. First Timothy 5.17 makes that clear that we are to honor those worthy of honor, especially our elders and especially those who teach and preach. And so Phil has grown as your pastor, Phil continues to grow as your pastor, and it is a worthy thing for us to honor him. And the best way that we can honor Phil today is to hear from God's word, because Phil's hope is in the Lord. His hope for this church is that God's word would work and do its job, not that he could do his job well, but that God's word would do its job. And, and that's really why we come to this psalm today, Psalm 131. As we read through this psalm, you're going to see what Romans 15:4 tells us, that Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's why we have the word for us today that as God's people, we would grow in hope, that we would understand that God's word is still active and moving in in our lives and transforming us and making us more and more into the image of Christ. So if you would, just follow along in your copy of God's word, Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Today, as we look at this topic of hope and contentment and what it looks like to be God's people trusting God, I want to encourage you and exhort you with this, that I see two barriers in this text to hope and contentment in the Lord. And also two exclamations, two exhortations for the heart as we hope and content ourselves in the Lord. So look for those two barriers to hope and contentment in the Lord and also the two exclamations of the heart that truly hopes and is contented in the Lord. But first, before we dive into that, I want us to look at and define this hope that we're talking about. There, David writes, hope in the Lord, O Israel, hope in the Lord. What does it look like to hope in the Lord? So I want you to see the big picture before we dive into these two barriers and two exclamations. Hope in the Lord. What does it mean to hope? It's a contentment. And when he uses the name of the Lord here, he's using the covenantal name of God. The, the way God has revealed himself to his people from ages past. This God who is a continual source of contentment and hope. The God who has made a promise and a covenant and a God, the God who will keep his covenant and promise. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we hope in the Lord because we can find contentment in a God who is continually keeping his covenant with his people. Lamentations 3 tells us, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Hope is found in the fact that God is continually keeping his covenant. He is the Lord. This hope that we see in this text and the hope that we're to have as God's people is a hope in the Lord whose ways are not our our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts, Isaiah would tell us. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's There's an uncertainty in life, 
and the way things happen in life. And if you don't know that, you just haven't been paying attention or you haven't lived long enough. But we can hope in God's care because of his never-ending love for us. We can have certainty in the midst of uncertainty because God is never uncertain. His ways and his thoughts are far beyond ours and very just different. It's not just that he knows more. He knows differently. It's not that he just acts more and is more powerful. He's just a different type of powerful. He is holy and separate and different than us. And so we can find our hope and our contentment in him. We hope in the Lord. And you see it in the picture here. It says, as a mother hen almost bringing in her chicks. That's what the, the scriptures would tell us of God's love. But here you have the picture of a mother with a weaned child. And there's a, there's a comfort that comes from the Lord because he gathers his people under his wing. We hope in the Lord because he does not leave us to our own devices. He brings us in and draws us in by his love. He never leaves or forsakes his people. And so if you are watching online or if you walked in these doors today and you feel alone, you are not alone if you are in Christ Jesus. If you feel hopeless, there is hope found in the Lord and a God who cares for us because he loves us. And that love is forever and ever never ceasing, covenantal. He has said it. He will do it. And so this hope in the Lord really colors and paints a picture for us of of what life is meant to be in the Lord, of what it looks like to actually be people of faith. To say we trust the Lord, we, we don't just say that with our mouths. We actually hope in the Lord. We place our contentment in him. He has to be enough for us. And for David, that's what he is exclaiming. But when hope and contentment rest on anything other or anything less than God himself, what's the result? Well, I think the result is, and you can see it in David's life, the author of this psalm, when he wasn't content with what God had given him, where did it lead him? Remember on his rooftop, looking at a woman bathing, wanting and taking, murdering, committing adultery? The life that is not hoping and contented in God himself is a life that first results in spiritual lethargy and ultimately in spiritual bankruptcy. Another way of putting this would be a misplaced hope will lead to misplaced ambition. It will lead to a misplaced heart. Misplaced hope will lead to a misplaced life. And so if you're hoping in anything else or anything less than God himself. Today, the call is hope in the Lord. So we're going to look at these two barriers to hope and contentment in the Lord. The first barrier to hope and contentment in the Lord, according to the text, is quite simply pride. When pride enters the scene, hope and contentment in the Lord flies away. David puts it this way, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Pride is the believer's worst internal enemy. Pride makes it impossible to be content. Because when you're proud and you think too highly of yourself, when your eyes are lifted a little too high and you think too highly of your station, your ambition, who you are, what's the first thought? It's not 
hey, this is great. It's, I deserve better. I deserve more. Pride makes it impossible to be joyous in this life because we deserve better. We deserve more. The higher we think of ourselves, the less joyous we can be because we always think we deserve more and better. Pride makes it impossible to love. We deserve more. We deserve better. Even in your marriages, you've experienced this. With your children, you've experienced it. When, when love begins to grow cold, why? Why does that happen in your marriage or among your family? What happens? You begin to think a little too highly of what you deserve, what you want, what you should have. You want more out of your wife or out of your husband, more out of your children. You can't enjoy them for the gift that they are, but instead, we deserve more. We deserve better. But doesn't Paul tell the Corinthians, love is not arrogant. Love is not proud. Pride makes it impossible to please God. Because pride will never allow faith to rest in anyone other than ourselves. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. The first barrier for us to resting in the Lord, finding our contentment in Him, hoping in the Lord, is pride. But when we trust in God's perfect providence, when we trust in His provision, when we see the good gifts that He's given us, when we know of His nearness, when we begin to be tuned in to the fact that God is working in millions and millions of ways for us, because we are his children, and we're not usually recognizing this, when we trust in God's perfect providence and plan and in his provision, then what we begin to do is we begin to trust. We begin to place our faith in the goodness and the love of God, and he becomes the key and the real source of our hope and contentment. We begin to say, I could never earn it. I could never do it. I don't deserve it. That's a change in tone from I deserve better, I deserve more, to I don't deserve what I have, much less more and better. And I can begin to rest in the goodness and the love of the Lord. Samuel Rutherford said it this way, Think it not hard if you get not your will. Sounds like Yoda there to me, right? He's like talking backwards. But what he's saying is, hey, don't think that God's being hard on you just because you don't, don't get what you want. Or your delights in this life. If you don't get all the things that you really like in this life, God will have you to rejoice in nothing but himself. So often we think, I'm not getting what I want. Does God love me? I'm not getting what I want. Hey, Lord, where are you? Are my prayers being heard? And God's going, I hear what you want. You just don't really want that. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. Stop thinking so highly of what you want and what you think, and let's start living a life of humility. But what we have to come to terms with is this. Pride is, pride is the natural disposition of the human heart. Humility is not the natural mode for us as people. Humility is not where we will go in default mode. Pride is the natural disposition of the human heart. Humility doesn't come naturally, but it does come when we love in the right direction. And that's what the text tells us. Oh, Lord, my heart 
is not lifted up. David understands that pride is an issue of the heart. Humility will be formed in the heart as a, as a love for God in who he is, is grown. Humility is grown and he will not lift up his own heart. He won't think too highly of himself. This humility of heart is throughout scripture. We can see it in Proverbs 16. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. 1 John chapter 2 tells us this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the, the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This humility of heart is what we need to be growing in our lives. And we grow that by knowing the God who is the one we are to content ourselves in, who is our hope, who is glorious when we are not, who is holy though we are not, who is great though we are small. And our hearts loving him will produce Humility. But humility doesn't come naturally. We must love in the right direction. Our hearts must not be lifted in the wrong direction. They must be lifted to the Lord. Our hearts need to not be lifted up in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own worthiness, but must find their true love in the Lord. Humility doesn't come naturally. But it does come when we begin to think rightly about ourselves and our place, our position. There's a humility that we need as God's people of our pursuits in life, our, uh, our humility about our place and our status in life. That's what he continues on with. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high, David would say. There's a humility in his pursuit in life, a humility in his place in life. And doesn't that seem ironic? He was a king. Not only that, he's the clearest Old Testament relationship to the king of kings. When the people of Israel were desiring a Messiah, they thought he must be something like David. David didn't have any higher he could attain to. But are you ever really satisfied with what this world gives you? If your heart in your mind, think too highly of yourself. David was king. He had the world at his fingertips. And he still took and grabbed and desired more. Humility doesn't come naturally. And it's not going to come when you get everything your heart desires, everything you think you deserve. No, if your eyes are raised too high, that ambition will continue to push you further and further from humility, further and further from trusting in the Lord, further and further from hope and contentment in the Lord. Proverbs 26 tells us, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Remember Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Ambition. What did God do with their ambition? Well, right now, I'm still traveling the world with missionaries all over the world trying to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to people who have never heard, and they've been scattered ever since. God accomplishes his purposes by humbling us and showing himself to be great, not by making us great 
or allowing us to make a name for ourselves. Psalm 49 says, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. That ambition that says, I can, I can do it. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Parents, let me, let me just encourage you real quick. I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old, and I want my girls to think that they can do anything, right? I want them to dream big and think that they can. No, from the beginning, I've told my girls, you're probably not capable of that. Does that make me a bad parent? I don't know. I want you to have aspirations. I want you to have dreams. I want you to have ambitions, but they need to be ambitions that are going to serve the kingdom, not serve to make you great. If we're going to be great, let's be great for the kingdom. If we're going to be great, let's be great in humility. Great at pursuing our confidence and our hope in the Lord. Great at demonstrating how great God is. Parents, I would encourage you, as proud as you may be with, your, with our bumper stickers on the back of our car talking about our straight-A students and our honor roll students, if they ever go back to school and all of that, you know. As much as we're proud of our children, man, I'd love to make bumper stickers that say, my kid loves Jesus and plays drums in the praise band. That's just great, isn't it? So many pastor's kids who would run as quickly as possible from having to serve in the church. So proud of my daughters, who one was serving in children's ministry back home today, and the other was clicking through all the slides, making sure everybody could sing along. So I'm thankful for your kids, Bill, that they have a ministry in this church, and I would encourage all of you to rally around them, not so that they will be great, but so they'll show how great God is. They'll grow to be the most humble people in this church as they follow the example of the people of this church who teach them. We need a humility of pursuit, a humility of ambition. That doesn't come naturally, but only when we think rightly about ourselves and our place, when we understand how small we are and place our confidence not in our own ability, but our confidence in the Lord. Humility doesn't come naturally, but it does come when we rest in God's providence. There's a humility of perspective that we need as God's people. So what he says here in the text, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He doesn't spend time on meaningless stuff that seems too amazing to really even understand. He doesn't go after things that aren't meant for him. He doesn't pursue the things that aren't his to pursue. There's a humility of perspective. Obadiah chapter 1, was the last time you heard from Obadiah? Obadiah chapter 1, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And we need to understand no matter how high and mighty, no matter how many years of ministry, how many years of service, how much money, how much position, how much we become the big man in the room. And Phil's always been the big man in the room. From the moment I met him, he was always the, the guy that everybody went, it's Phil. I was telling people, hey, I'm going out to, 
old seminary buddies that are running into you. You remember Phil Oxford? They weren't even in seminary while you were there, but they remember you. And in the two decades I've known Pastor Phil, one mark of his character that has always challenged me and impressed me, exhorted me, is his humility. Now, I would never tell him that, because that's really the first step towards the big crash that comes, right? As soon as you start telling someone of their humility, you begin to push your friend off the ledge of pride. The story is told of a woman after 50 years of ministry in a church and children's ministry was given an award for her 50 years. And she goes, it's been a pleasure to serve the church for the last 50 years. And no one is more humble than I am. I don't want to tell him he's humble. But I do want to encourage him today that he is an example to me and to so many in his humility. He has a humility of heart. His heart is not lifted up. He doesn't think too highly of himself. His love is in the right direction. If you are around Phil any length of time, you know he has a clear love in the right direction. He understands that pride lies in the heart and is the natural mode for those who set their hearts on anything other than the Lord. He has a humility of pursuit. I see it in his life. I've pastored in a small county of Powhatan, Virginia for the last 13 years, and while I've watched Phil, pastor here, I've been encouraged to stay, to plant, to water, to sow, to reap, to weep, to laugh, to die in anonymity if necessary. There's no need to pursue things other than what God has given to me. I learned that by watching Phil. I don't need what other pastors have. I have what the Lord has given me. Phil has the humility after 20 years of ministry here to know that there's no greener grass than Crestview Bible Church. There's no such thing. And this makes him a great pastor. Phil has a humility of perspective. He understands what the Puritans would call meanness. His smallness his unworthiness before the infinitely holy God. And so, Phil, my application to you today is to persevere in this, to delight in the Lord, to rest in the Lord, to humble yourself. When you begin to get frustrated, remind yourself, this is what the Lord has given me. It's good because he is good. To hope in the Lord when it seems like Things aren't moving at the pace or in the direction you wish they were. That this is Christ's church, not yours. Persevere in this. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think you deserve anything. No, it is an honorable thing for us to honor you today. But it is because of the grace of God shown in you and through you that we do that. The second barrier to hope and contentment in the Lord is really for a lot of us. And it's also for pastors, but it's for a lot of us. And that is a busy soul. Look back at the text. David says, but I have calmed and quieted my souls. After he understands the root of pride in him, and he's saying, look, I've been humbled. Now I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
you come into the room today or you're watching online today and you may be full of anxiety and fear. I flew on a plane for the first time since March. That was fun. Just want to remind everybody, if you are wearing a mask, it goes over your nose too. You know, not assuming everybody's a mouth breather. Right? But people on planes haven't figured that out yet. Um, the fact is there's anxiety and there's fear everywhere and it's being stoked at every turn. But I want you to see the picture that's painted here. It's of a, of a child in the arms of their mother, quieted and calmed. Not because the mother is providing anything other than her presence. It's a wean child in the arms of her mother. The child's not looking for food. The child's not looking for provision. The child has everything she needs in her mother. A busy or disquieted soul is a barrier to hope and contentment in the Lord because a busy or disquieted soul is constantly discontented by what is provided or not provided. I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want. What if, what if, what if? That disquieted soul is never going to be satisfied in the provider. If you can't be satisfied by what's provided... How will you ever be satisfied in the one who provided it? Imagine if a toddler, now weaned, started despising his mother simply because she wouldn't nurse him anymore. Is that not the same way we treat God? Is that not the same way our hearts and our souls tend towards God? He gives us good gifts, and for a time, he, he provides in ways that are overabunding, and we go, wow, look how much God loves me. And then all of a sudden, we go through lean times by our definition, and we go, well, where's God? And what that proves is that we treasure the gifts more than the giver. We treasure the provision more than the provider. A busy or disquieted soul is always going to treasure the gift over the giver, the provision over the provider. A.W. Pink said that is what really lies behind all evil, all lusting and disobedience, a discontent with our position and portion, a craving from something which God has wisely held from us. Can you not, in hindsight, so many times that you would call lean, look back on your life and say, oh, I I see now why God didn't give me that because he had something better. He was drawing me to trust him. He was drawing me to rest in him. He was drawing me to follow him. I needed him. I didn't need what I thought I needed. And God, in his infinite wisdom, gives us himself, nothing less. A contented and still soul like a child in the lap of his mother, treasures the provider over the provision, has a quiet mind in the midst of any circumstance because we're in the presence of our Lord, because we're held by the provider. We're held by our God. John Bunyan says, if we have not quiet in our minds, Any outward comfort will do no more for us than a glass slipper on a gouty foot. 
Let's go ahead and picture that in your mind real quick. If we're not finding comfort and quiet in our minds, if we're not quieted in our minds, no amount of good gifts will ever be good enough for us. Because the sickness is ours. The issue is not what we have or don't have. The issue is our own hearts. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul hits on in Philippians? This is not what he's getting at in this epistle of joy, as many of us know it, though I would say contentment is really at the heartbeat of that joy that he has, that true sense and source of joy for for Paul. Philippians chapter 4, if you'd flip over there in your copy of God's Word, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13 tells us this. As Paul reflects on his own life, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. He said, I love the fact that you're praying for me and you're concerned for me, but it's not like I had any need. Why? Because I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now think of his situations. (laughs) Shipwrecked, imprisoned, beaten. He says, I've learned, now he's imprisoned, now he is on house arrest, now he is probably going to be killed. And he says, I've learned to be content no matter what the situation. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I love the way he puts that. He says, you realize that Having a lot is just as much a problem as having nothing. (laughs) I've learned how to manage both. I've learned the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I've learned to be content, and that contentment is not circumstantial. No, it was a learned contentment. He says... I know now how to be brought low. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's not something that comes naturally. It's something he learned. And it's a contentment that was rooted in Christ himself, not in any provision from Christ, because he had a lot at times and he had nothing at times. He had plenty. He had hunger, abundance, and need. Charles Spurgeon would tell us, do not look to your hope, but to Christ. He is the source of your hope. But Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't just have a hope within himself. The rest of the epistle is about spreading that hope to the Philippian believers, that they would have the same contentment. He talks about himself in chapter 4, but he also, in the previous verses, wants that same hope and contentment to be for the people in Philippi. He says in verses 4 through 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 4, verse 10 He starts in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He's telling them just a few verses earlier, you rejoice. You rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what does he promise? And the peace of God, that quietness of soul, which surpasses all understanding, what can't be produced any other way, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The truly quiet soul rests in the covenant God who has made us his children. He did this by sending the King Jesus to be humbled 
for us when we were full of pride. He, the covenant God, made us his children by Jesus emptying himself and taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death on a cross. He made us his children, his covenant children, but the covenant God, the one that David is crying out to by resurrecting and exalting Jesus to a standing in which now we find our seat and we find our rest. We find our position and our ambition in him. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now have that same mindset among yourselves. So if you're watching online today, if you're here today, and you've come to celebrate anything other than Jesus, I call you to celebrate Jesus. If you've come seeking contentment and hope in anything other than Jesus, the call today is to find the one who has come and made himself low to be exalted by God and trust him. Trust him who has been humbled and humbled himself for those of us who are so proud. Trust the one who lived in perfect obedience to his father, who died the death that you and I deserved because of our rebellion against God, and who is risen and reigning, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us now. Trust him today. See, the truly quiet soul rests in the covenant God because he's made us his children. We are like the child sitting in the lap of the weaned mother. Because the truly quiet soul realizes we don't have a right to that seat. That's Jesus' seat. That's not our seat. Yet he has made us away. Eric Raymond says a content person is able to sit quietly under the reassuring affirmation of God that we are now sons and daughters of God. The Lord is his or her sufficiency. The truly quiet soul rejoices in the love of the Lord shown through his mercy and this treasure of knowing the Lord that we get to draw near, we get to sit in his lap, we get to find our peace and our comfort in him. Romans 5 tells us, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And that's not circumstantial. No, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. So it's not when things are good and we're resting in the lap of God, it's when we're resting in the lap of God and it hurts. Because we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love, not our circumstances, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. There are two barriers in your life and in my life 
to experiencing the contentment and hope that the Lord desires for us. Pride, when we're lifted up, we think too highly of ourselves. Pride in our, our ambition, pride in our perspective. We need to be humbled. And the second is, is your soul busy and anxious today? Is your heart restless within you, looking for contentment and hope? Rest in the lap of your God. I want to close with this. There are not just two barriers in this text. There's also two exclamations. There's two exclamations here, and this is where we would close in, in our application today especially on a day where we're celebrating 20 years of faithful ministry here at the church of Pastor Phil and your faithfulness, your faithfulness to pray for he and his family, your faithfulness to to continue to give and to support the work of the ministry here at Crestview. The two exclamations are pretty simple. You see the first in verse 1 there, and the second is in verse 3. The first one is, O Lord. David cries out, O Lord. There's an exclamation here. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. He's exclaiming in this personal, emphatic declaration to the Lord. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you trusted him enough to call upon him and say, look, I've been brought low. Other points in David's life, he would not have been able to say this honestly, but he's been brought low. Today, call upon the name of the Lord. Phil, in your life, in your ministry, model what it looks like to call upon the covenantal name of Yahweh God, to rest in his covenant promises, to call upon him and say, Oh Lord, you're bringing me low right now. Don't let today exalt you. Don't let today put you on a pedestal. May today humble you as you understand that there is no way these people would be changed by you. Not going to happen. It's God working as he's promised through his word by his spirit. That's why you can say with Peter in 1 Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's, here's what David's doing. Oh Lord, I'm declaring my complete dependence and submission on you. I am sitting in your lap. I don't get anything unless you provide it. And you are my provision and my hope. Oh, don't, don't be like so many who would exclaim, not, oh Lord, I've been brought low. Oh Lord, I've been humbled. Oh Lord, my hope is in you. But instead, the pride and discontented heart, prideful and discontented heart would say this, oh Lord, why? Why? Why is this happening? Oh Lord, why? Oh Lord, why? This isn't fair. Oh Lord, why? I wish. Oh Lord, I wish. No, hope is not some pie-in-the-sky reality. Hope is not the royals might actually win something this year, right? Hope is not maybe the baseball season will actually actually happen, right, and actually finish. That's not hope. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is this. Oh, Lord, it's on you. It's on you. Do what you do, because I cannot. But there's a second exclamation, isn't there, in verse 3? O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. There's a second exclamation here of David, calling upon the people of Israel to find their hope in the Lord as well. And I know Phil's heart. 
I know his love for you, and this is what he would exclaim. Oh, Crestview, find your hope in the Lord. From this day forth and forevermore, find your hope in the Lord, an eternal hope from this day forth and forevermore, a generational hope that goes from one generation to the next generation that's passed from parents to children, from grandparents to grandchildren. The generation after generation in Hutchinson would be absolutely declarers of the glory of God. Oh, Crestview, find your hope in the Lord. A hope that's not swayed by COVID-19, by circumstances, by face masks, by whatever. But a hope that's rooted in the never-changing God. I declare to you, as Paul declared to the Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. In so many ways, this is really the life of the pastor. To declare, God, I've been brought low. You are great. You are my provider. And then to declare to the people, find that same contentment and hope. Follow me in this hope and contentment. And so today on the occasion of Pastor Phil's 20th anniversary here at Crestview, I have known Pastor Phil for 22 years, and I went back as of tomorrow. And I've watched him pastor. I used to pick on him in the dorms at the seminary, because if you don't know this about Phil, he really likes things in their place. Watched him grill yesterday. Every hot dog was lined up perfectly. It was pretty amazing. After Phil left seminary, we were studying for a Greek exam, and we had our flashcards out, and we're going through the flashcards, and the box tipped over, and all the flashcards fell out, and we spent an hour putting them back together. At the end of that, I called Phil, even though he lived in Tennessee at the time, and I said, hey, Phil, it's all put back together. You can go to sleep now. I'd go in and just move things in his dorm room just to see if he'd notice. He always noticed. I've known Phil for 22 years. I've gotten to watch him pastor. I've gotten to pray with him through trials and literal floods. Gotten to rejoice with him in short-term and long-term victories. And here's what I know. He loves this church. He loves you. Every sleepless night is because he loves you. Every sermon is because he loves you. Every hour of preparation is because he loves you. And I've watched you love him and Meg and the kids. I've watched you love him this summer as they celebrate 20 years. In fact, I'm just going to be honest with you, I've been taking notes for my church for my anniversary. But hear me on this. You can have meals for him. You can celebrate him. You can give trips. And those things should be done in honor of Phil and what God has shown by his grace and mercy through Phil. But you can love Phil best by loving God first. You can love Phil and Meg and the kids best by treasuring Christ above all else. 
Imagine if today was not celebrating Phil's 20 years of service here, but imagine if today was Phil's last day as your pastor. Or imagine if he has 20 more years as your pastor. Besides telling you this, glorify and enjoy God forever, because you know he'd say that, he will continually exclaim to you this, O Crestview, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Oh God, may we as your people now remain restless until our hearts find rest in you alone. You've made us for yourself. We belong to you. Now may we find hope and contentment nowhere else. All of this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.